I've decided not to see Bob. At all? At all. How can you say that? He's gonna be fucked up enough as it is, and I don't want to fuck him up even more by playing Sunday Daddy. What were you to him, anyway? Precisely. But he knows you. He's yours. He needs your... A real father, full-time. Well, I thought I could be coming out from the war, so to speak. You say it's better with him than with me. I get more out of it. Tell me. I think what you want to do to Bob is... Inhuman? So what you're doing must be human. How long is it going to last? I don't know. One week, two weeks? And how do you dispose of ideas like... like honesty and loyalty? If I could only believe that it happened cleanly at first sight. Okay. If it makes things easier. I was in his bed the first night I met him, if you have to know. What do you expect of me? Look what you're doing! No one is good or bad. But if you want, I am the bad one. And if I knew he existed in this world, I would have never had Bob with you. All right, guys, it is the October Spooktacular. There it is. Anxiously awaiting the drop. <laughs> it's the scariest part of the pod. It really is. <laughs> oh, there it is. <laughs> Week two of four. <laughs> uh... What's today's date? <laughs> Don't worry about it. Theater of the mind. Theater of the mind as you're slicing your Thanksgiving ham. Take yourself back about three weeks. We are talking about the 1981 film Possession today. Possession. Directed by Andrzej Żuławski, the Polish filmmaker, the Polish art house filmmaker. His only English language film. And a film that stars Isabel Ajani and Sam Neill, a young Sam Neill, pre-dinosaurs and all sorts of other shit. That's true. This is when he was doing weird art, art house stuff. <laughs> yeah. Is Isabel Ajani done Nosferatu yet? She had done Nosferatu in okay. the late 70s. And okay. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Had not done Ishtar yet. I don't know if she was dating Warren Beatty yet at this point, and I don't think she was with Daniel Day Lewis. But oh, yeah, yeah, a bit of uh, an ingenue, mm -hmm. you know, kind of a mythic European beauty that pops up in a lot of these like cult classic movies from the seventies and eighties. She is very white. Yeah. She is incredibly white. I was taken aback by how freaking pale she was. This is uh, a movie that. Recently, I think over the summer, made its streaming premiere on Shudder. I'd seen a lot of talk about this movie over the last couple of months, especially, although I'd been hearing about it, of course, for many years. And this, you know, the subway scene that's going to traumatize you and this like sensory experience, this overload. But it's a movie that Adam decided to bring to the pod for this spectacular. <laughs> if anybody's going to bring a sensory overload assault movie, it's going to be me. 
These are all very polite euphemisms for mess of a film. <laughs> well, oh. <laughs> I would, oh. <laughs> mess like physically, like it, it feels sticky and like there's there's gook everywhere. There like, are, like there messy. Are yeah. <laughs> Some messes are made. <laughs> there's many, uh, you know, like uh, oozing orifices in this movie, oh. you know. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> pus coming from places you don't expect pus to come from. Mm-hmm. Mm. Every every filmmaker who's into body horror or just into horror in general, this is like their little gem. Mm. But it's now transcended that. It's one of those like everybody who, who wants to be a filmmaker knows what possession is. Yeah, if you, you get, want to prove your horror bona fides, exactly. you better have seen possession. You got to right. see possession. Right. And I, I, you know, I, of course I love, of course I love this movie. What a surprise, right? Yeah, Because again, like, like you, you never quite know what you're getting with the filmmaker recommendations. Often you have like the Tarantinos that just want to show you a dope movie. Yeah. And there's lots of like weirdos out there that are like, this is just, it's just a beautiful powerful movie and that can mean a whole number of things Guillermo del Toro <laughs> was the guy that yeah. was recommending it on Twitter over the summer and that is one of the reasons why it kind of went viral again yeah um so that was I understand obviously why he would have oh, yeah. although his movies are a lot more romantic and <laughs> sweeter starry-eyed yeah yeah I could understand obviously the influence on his creatures mm-hmm. I can recognize why filmmakers would want to watch this film, but I, I just find it so hard to want to recommend this to anybody. You cannot recommend this movie. No. Well, that's but that's what we're talking. But Guillermo del Toro just recommended it to the world via Twitter. <laughs> that's why when I, I I preface by saying with certain filmmakers, you really don't quite know what you're getting because I've seen filmmakers say that you have to watch Solo at least once in your life. And I'm sitting here <laughs> no. like, look, I've seen Solo. You don't need to watch Solo, okay? You just you can skip that one. I can promise you, it's not a Tarantino fuck yeah like recommendation like Rolling Thunder it's not like that at all it's this tough tough surrealist psychological experience that's kind of meant to traumatize and how do you feel having just bought a house with your partner and being engaged to marry in the spring okay 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 but I, I feel I feel like the difference between my relationship and Sam Neill's relationship I well they're not exactly right for each other so there's uh, yeah, that. You so there's don't that. say. Yeah, <laughs> and th- that was really more of my takeaway from this movie. What happens to a-, a human relationship when two people are put together that very much don't belong together? Can I push back though? So it, it turns out in the movie that the person who is right for them is their spouse or a version of their spouse. Well, no, but this right. No, but this yes. is what the the point the movie makes is that if you're pairing two people together that are not meant for each other. You either have to completely change everything about who you are or literally become a different person. Yeah. It's, it's a or change everything mm, about that. Every yeah. single thing about you. It's, it is a horrifying dehumanizing yes. experience. Making marriage work. You literally have to view the, the other person as less than human. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's not a universal statement about like every good marriage, but in this case where it's like, People who have maybe stuck it out for way longer than they probably should have. Mm -hmm. This is a a psychological, emotional interpretation of what it's probably like. Oh, this movie's such a fucking nightmare. It's such a nightmare. It's really, really, really hard to watch. And I am not someone that is married or engaged, unlike the two of you guys. So, No, but if you're a human being who has interpersonal relationships, you can relate to this. Certainly. Yes, certainly with with friendships that I'm not fond of. I, I understand that. Yes, this kind of like parasitic, mm. this evil that like 
slowly inches in and like consumes your relationships and uh yeah it's a movie that just feels fucking evil though like it just yes it just feels evil it's so oh it's so gross you know it's so funny i i just got out of killers of the flower moon yesterday and i watched this movie (laughs) in the wake of it what yeah. Wait, wait, when did you watch uh, Killers? I, I watched Killers of the Flower in the wake of Possession. Oh, okay, back okay. to back. <laughs> oh, that can't be good. <laughs> no, no, it was not really a feel-good weekend for me. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie. It is a very specific, odd feeling, the feeling of a movie being evil. You know, there are plenty of movies about <laughs> evil that don't feel evil themselves. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? That are just like, from a distance, observing evil or maybe juxtaposing it with good you know like there are plenty of movies like that that is the american myth right or the the human myth is Mm -hmm. the battle between good and evil yeah there are some movies that were just evil wins to the point where it infects the filmmaking itself Mm -hmm. and kills the flower moon felt that way oh god and this movie feels that way they they're both like evil movies and i don't mean that they're not like clear-eyed about what evil is and they're not like morally righteous or whatever no but they do give you that sense of like the devil does exist. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it, it either takes the form of a squid monster or Robert De Niro. <sighs> <you know? laughs> Lovely. So yeah, no, I, I definitely feel that way. And for that reason, this was one of the hardest watches I've ever had yep. for this podcast. I think when we were, we were prepping this, this is another one of those movies where I'm just like, are you sure about that? You especially. You I th- sure about I, that? I, I figured, you I figured, sure about that? I had a feeling Nick would either be like, like that was deeply uncomfortable, but like, fuck this movie. <laughs> well, here's the thing. It is messy. It is not ineptitude. It is purposefully messy. The cuts are jarring. The dialogue is jarring. The, the behavior is jarring. Is insane. <laughs> Every single thing is meant to put you on edge and make you confused and uncomfortable. But because of that, it was like easy to lose the plot. Does plot really matter in this? It, it's more of an emotional journey, isn't it? It took me out of the film because I spent too much time trying to trying figure, to figure out what it the fuck out. is going on. It does put on that guise of like, what's the mystery at the heart of this? And then the mystery is, is in plain sight the entire time. But you, yes. you, yeah. you do find yourself in, in a way, so particularly with the little flashes with the monster, you're like, what the hell is that? So the movie kind of draws you in a little bit, like wondering like what this movie's really cooking up. And even when it reveals it, it's not quite the same like, oh my God, it all makes sense now. You you end up being more confused, really. when it, Totally. When it, when it does explain that stuff. Totally. And I was a little caught off guard by the ending of this movie, which we will get to. Yes. And it absolutely blew me away and floored me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if I realized that I was watching a piece of absurdism until like the hour and a half mark. <laughs> because it does take the form of a pretty traditional like scenes from a marriage relationship movie. You know, and it's very domestic in the first hour, even sure, though it's like sure. hyper stylized. And I think you, it is kind of playing a, a shell game with you. It's, it is kind of hiding the ball on you. And then by the end of it, I'm like, oh, my God, this is, and I hate to use this phrase, but it is a Lynchian piece of, like, absurdism. Yes, it is. Yes, you know, is. and the ending is very Lynchian. Like, you know, Laura Palmer screaming at the end of Twin Peaks, The Return, just is the use very of, similar to the ending of this movie. The, yeah, the use of doppelgangers, too, and just in general. There's so right. much to Twin Peaks in, in something like this. I don't know if Lynch was directly inspired by this, really. but yeah. Well, I'm sure this was inspired by Eraserhead, too. So yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, there was a lot of, like, yeah, give and take there. But I agree with you, Nick, in the sense that the movie just put up a front mm-hmm. and once you get to the scene, like with the mother, for example, killing herself, 
by overdosing on the pills and she's talking about her son's soul yeah. having left his body. And I'm like, oh, this is like weird. Like in Twin Peaks when they're in the Black Lodge and they're having these like spiritual conversations, <laughs> there's like a weird stoicism to all of these characters. The emotional state doesn't quite match what's happening on screen. Yep. You know, they're not always feeling terror where they're supposed to feel terror. And it's disorienting. It's very disorienting. Yep. And you learn to embrace it by the end. But for most of the movie, you're like, I just want these two people to work it out. No. You know? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> believe it or not, I got a message yesterday from front of the podcast, Joe DeFeo. Mm. And I swear to God, this was yesterday afternoon. He asks me, have you ever seen the film Possession? Oh, my God. <laughs> Which is just an insane coincidence that Holy shit. is kind of like, man, what is the supernatural power of this movie? <laughs> like, I feel like, I'm like I've, I've played the tape from Evil Dead or something. Now, all of a sudden, DeFeo is mentioning it to me. <laughs> How could he have known? Uh, He watched it with his partner. I guess a double bill with Bo is afraid. And so make of that what you will. Oh, my God. Uh, But he was like, yeah, kind of a tough watch. (laughs) Would you recommend that couples watch this movie together? Uh, I think if couples are going through a struggle. Yeah. Maybe, maybe no. it's nice no. just to let them know that you can make it through as well. Yes, you know there can, is light if, at the end of the tunnel. If they can do it, you can. Yeah, do if it. these two crazy kids <laughs> can make it work. I think it's a first date movie. I think this has set the tone. Oh, if we can survive this, and or if we're bad for each other, we need to like make the right call now. You know what I mean? It could develop some really horrifying kinks too. Yeah, tentacles, man. Tentacles are nice, right? I mean, everyone loves tentacles. That. Monster, dude. Holy shit. I, I wanted to make so many jokes, about, like, but I was like, I couldn't really spoil it. I was like, I uh, got to say, you just got to see that for the first time. <laughs> yeah. But- I, Andrzej Zalowski, when he pitched this movie to Paramount, he wanted to make it in America at first. He's like, yeah, it's a movie about a woman that fucks an octopus. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's kind of what this movie is. <laughs> that creature was designed by Carlo Rambaldi, who is the legendary special effects artist who worked on Alien and designed E.T. famously. That's probably his most famous work. God, I mean, everything that that guy's ever designed will stay in your mind forever. Yes. <laughs> this is one of the more unfortunate ones, but uh, right. <laughs> it does its job, man. Oh, my God. This thing, it just is foul <laughs> and so weird. It's kind of scary at first, and then I'm just so puzzled by it. And that, that mixture of, like, fear and confusion. The, and then, like, first of all, why is it here? And then why is she having sex with it? <laughs> <laughs> it looks so good. Yeah. It's so funny to me that he was, like, kicking around ideas for E.T. while he was designing this. You know, that they were, like, both in his brain. He had to get all the evil out, out of his head to create the cuteness of E.T. Well, yeah, you just imagine, like, yeah, yeah it, the, the, like, bipolar syndrome you have to have to, like, be working on these at the same time. You yeah. know, and it, it's like, by day I work on E.T., by night I work on possession. You know what I mean? That's just terrible. I, I just I... snort lots of coke, and I'm just like, let's make a squid. Oh, let's make a squid, baby. Yeah. <laughs> Good lord. It's not really an alien. I don't know what this thing is. It's kind of like a demon, uh, it, well, a miscarried baby. I don't I don't really know what it's this it's thing not. Is. Although it is almost just as convincing as the baby from Eraser Head. That's another yes. amazing design. Yes, yes, yes. Uh and I mean no, I don't I don't think you're supposed to take this thing completely literally, but Oh, okay. So you are on that side that this is not actually happening. 
No, no. Okay. no I think it's more of a, a manifestation of, of one's like sin and guilt and just the way you, you might embrace that after a, a horrible breakup or a, or a divorce or something like that. Yeah, her infidelity, yeah. her yeah, her desire for, yeah, exactly, the perfect man, the perfect husband, the yeah. one that's always there that doesn't yeah. go to fucking Germany to and the, spy on and just Soviets. How, yeah, can we talk about this guy's job? Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's. Yeah, you know, good point. Let's start from the beginning of this movie. Let's, let's start go from the top. beat by okay. beat because we have a lot of we've things jumped, to hit. We've along already the way. jumped to the squid for God's sake. Yeah, I know. We kinda, yeah. <laughs> Sam Neill plays a fucking spy. He plays in a spy. Yes. East Berlin. Yes. We should mention this movie is set in Germany, in West Berlin, and it lets you know, and it lets you know a lot <laughs> because the the apartment that is kind of where all the action happens in this movie, the most important location, is right on the Berlin Wall. There is hardly a, an exterior shot that does not feature the Berlin Wall. It's that yes, constant it's encroaching oppression that just creates this natural divide. It's so thematically appropriate. I love it. Well, I mean, but it's literally it's it's it on, is the metaphor for divorce. Yes, right. Like it's the structure. <laughs> Sure. That it, it was literally built in the honor of a divorce. Yeah. It, it, again, it's none of those details that, like, I think an lesser director could so easily annoy me and be like, God, there's no subtlety to this fucking hack. Yeah. Here, though, it's, yeah, it's obvious, but yes. it makes sense. It's obvious, but it's subtle, though, it's, right? Yeah, no, no, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Exactly. It is just there. Well, it's also, really it's, the, it's not really ever the focus of the shot. It's always just, like, in the lower third. The fact that that is just part of the scene and you just have to accept it, I think that's part, probably yeah. what makes it so disturbing. It's like, oh, we have to just yeah. embrace the Berlin Wall. Yeah, so it, it is also the sense too that like there's an evil on the other side of that wall that is encroaching upon us. It's this the communism is coming and the it reckoning does. Is, <laughs> and I guess yeah, in, in a way communism does show up. But it's also just crazy like my main character in this movie about a divorce and a demon is a spy. That just <laughs> right. sounds like it a is crazy very goofy. choice. Yes, it's very <laughs> All right, let's talk about Sam Neill for a second because this is in his like art house period. He's a you know an actor from New Zealand. He's a Kiwi, and obviously had not made Jurassic Park and not done any of the John Carpenter movies and nothing like that. He was just really working in like independent European cinema, and he is a very strange casting choice here. That was the first thing that stuck out because like this guy is not a fucking spy. You know, like that guy would stick out like a sore thumb as a like he could not commit espionage. It's like he's fucking Sam Neill and he's a weirdo. Well, but the movie's not about being a spy. No, there's like one scene devoted to him being a spy, essentially really only the one scene in the boardroom. How many vials did he take with him? Two. What procedure have you devised for contacting him again? It's all in my report. I suggest it's more economical to fill in my successor. You don't feel there's a need for a successor. I've completed my job. Brilliant. That's why we want to rehire you. It's out of the question. And what would be the reason for your refusal? Family. Oh, couldn't you be of some help there? No. Wouldn't it be advisable for you to reconsider? I'm unable to do that. Would you be unable for a long time? I hope not. Aren't you allowing feelings to prevent you from answering your own questions? Exactly why I advise you to hire my successor. Good. Any questions? No. Does our subject still wear pink socks? My whole point is the decision to make him a spy, I think, is the weirdest choice. Right. Yeah, sure. To include that scene in the movie at all just makes no sense. Sure. At the same time, though, I'm like, that guy is not capable of being covert. I mean, Sam Neill is not capable of not standing out in any movie that he's in. (laughs) 
<laughs> why would he not stand out in Soviet Russia? You know what I mean? I'm okay with him as a spy, I guess. You like that he's a spy. I don't know. I think it is like a really cool little character detail that's very funny. It is. <laughs> Sam Neill's like, like I don't know. My, my opinions on spies are always like they, they would be closer to the Sam Neills than the James Bonds of the world. Like a, that's why, like I love yeah. James as much as I love James Bond. Like a James Bond character would stick out much more than a Sam Neill character to me. I guess you're right in the sense that, like, you kind of have to be weird to be a spy. Yeah. It's a weird job to like get into. It's like, here's my resume. Here's all the spy craft that I've done. <laughs> Why did you write espionage? No, I got to write spy. Yeah. I'm a spy. Yeah. It's just, it's, yeah, it's weird. Uh, <laughs> it is a weird job, but I guess he is a weird guy that like just uproots his family to go spy on the Russians. But I think it's just Sam Neill in general, just as a performer is really unlike anyone else. One of those great actors, in my opinion, he is one of the great actors of all time. Yes. And is never really discussed as such, but he truly is phenomenal actor. One that one Jeff Goldblum always talks very highly of was one of the great actors of all time. And I got to tell you what Spielberg casting him in Jurassic Park is one of the genius casting decisions to like <laughs> pluck out this weirdo from German art house cinema. I know he'd already done like Hunt for October and stuff. Stuff, he's very good in that too. He, he he's very good. Yeah. Um. But to pluck that guy out and be like, I'm gonna make him the paternal figure at the center of this very earnest, sincere movie is mm -hmm. fascinating because he does have that streak in him. But you would never know that watching this movie. Like you watch this movie, and it's like you should never be a dad. No, but like <laughs> I, I'm amazed by like those ingenious casting decisions where it could go either way. Where there's instances where it's like Tom Hanks has been cast against type and it didn't work. And it's it like, never works no, when that, he casts against type. It, it, all ultimately, like well, it, it very rarely, very rarely. It's, and even then, it's cued in a way that like he's it's still somewhat likable because he's Tom, Tom Hanks. Hanks. Yeah, right, right. But so I, I'm always fascinated by those casting decisions that anyone prior to the casting would be like, what the hell's the matter with you? This is never, ever, ever going to work. I imagine anyone would put in like a fine performance for the Sam Neill character in Jurassic Park, for example. But why was he the best yeah, guy? If for it's if Richard Dreyfuss or any of like yeah. Spielberg's regulars could have filled it. Of course. Yeah. 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 But Harrison but Ford, whatever. It's dramatic trying to turn that guy over into a father figure. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, you're right, because you do buy that he's a bad dad. Like, exactly. You buy that he would be a bad dad or would never want kids. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's always the thing about this movie, and like this movie's going for something so radically different. <laughs> yeah. Because it's kabuki theater, right? Like It's really like pronounced performances, and it's meant to be uncomfortable, and the characters are symbols of evil and good mm -hmm. rather than like embodiments of real people. Mm -hmm. Does this meet the criteria of German expressionists? Uh, not not aesthetically. No. Well, it's not German. No, but so there's your. I was gonna say maybe from an element of the performance at times, but the performance to me al almost feels like not so much German expressionism, but almost like there's a surrealist improvisational element to the the performance at times. Well, I'll tell you what it it feels like. It feels like a lot of speaking of another Polish filmmaker, but a lot of Roman Polanski's horror movies. Mm -hmm. It feels yeah. very much like Repulsion. Yep, and I don't think it's a coincidence that all of this great horror came out of Poland in the 70s and 80s during the Cold War and the sort of tug of war that's happening where Poland is constantly under occupation and there's mm. heavy censorship. I mean, he had to flee Poland, not flee, but he had to leave Poland because his films were getting censored over there for their like anti-establishment messaging. So it definitely does feel irreverent and about this sort of impending doom and the encroachment of evil on an innocent society. 
just like Roman Polanski's horror movies all feel like. You get that funny enough from even guys who were like sort of like affected by it on a, on a more peripheral level. Like even like the Verhoeven is not Polish, but like he was sort of affected by that similar era as well. And that's why his films are the way that they are and why when he comes over to America, he kind of like tears down the walls in the way that he does, which is great. Like Reagan. You get, you get, yeah. (laughs) Jeez. Yes. Like, just like Reagan. (laughs) Just like, oh my God. (laughs) So yeah, guy is a spy and he returns home and his son is a little bit older and his wife is a little distant and right away you can tell that there was already a breakup. Yes. Like we're entering into this in media res. That was another thing that really disoriented me watching this thing and made it even more uncomfortable. Yeah. You don't really find out the origins of any of this. No. no. You don't see like, unlike scenes from marriage or like any of these, like Kramer versus Kramer, whatever, I guess Kramer versus Kramer is similar, right? In the sense that you jump in right at the divorce. So, well, that that's a movie that you're with uh, Dustin Hoffman's character, and it's supposed, to, yeah, supposed to be deliberately off-putting and disorienting. It's just because he doesn't know what's going on. It just happens. It actually is very similar in yeah. that way. Yeah, and the way that Meryl is just made out to be totally erratic, possessed by the devil, almost in her actions. <laughs> like, yeah, and also a young son. I guess it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There you go. It's it's similar so, in that way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, entering into it without any explanation of what happened between these two people, especially in a movie like this, because Kramer vs. Kramer is at least like has its feet in reality. Not to say that this doesn't have some feet in reality, but the way it's using reality yeah. to create something very different often. So, you know, you don't get any explanation of that. And then ultimately, I'm skipping ahead here, but you don't get any explanation of the octopus. No, you don't get the moment of possession. Right. She's already possessed by the time that we meet her. Mm hmm. Which is just really disorienting. Like, there's so little explanation here, and you have to parse it mm-hmm. out for yourself, along with the fact that you have to parse out this plot that makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, exactly. Besides this just being about, like, a divorce, I feel like there's some talk about birth and being a mother, having a child, because she talks about her own son. She says, like, if I could have chosen, I wouldn't have had him with you. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is like a crazy thing to say. I think it all stems from that core of like, what are the things that happens to people when you get two people that are fiercely really not supposed to be together? How does that affect them? But then how does it branch out and affect everybody else? Well, everything becomes poisoned. Yes. Right. And like, that's the way, like Sam Neill talks about like God being a disease to him, (laughs) right? Like existence feels like evil. I used to be afraid of you, but I don't think I am anymore. There's nothing to fear except God. Whatever that means to you. For me, God is a disease. I I guess that explains this creature, because she birthed this creature. Mm -hmm. Sure. Exactly. Right. So uh, even the children you birth are going to be a poison or a corruption. Oh, I mean, yeah, they're a constant reminder of your pain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, that's, that's a common thing in divorce movies is, like, it's a constant reminder of this person that you hate. And every time you look at them, it's like half of that person is a person that you loathe. And you also need to like remain in a relationship with this person, at least in a business sense. Yeah. It's like all like everything becomes like, it, you know, the way that when people talk about falling in love, it's like the world opened up, the skies opened up. It's like, yeah, divorce could do the complete opposite effect, maybe in double. 
this relationship and how it's affecting their lives starts to feel apocalyptic, especially by the ending, yeah. which is a crazy thought. Everything that they know and love is just ruined. It's all filth. Yeah. It's not a fun movie. No. <laughs> not a great time. <laughs> so, yeah. So she says, I want a divorce, essentially. And I've also met someone. And the person that she met is named Heinrich, who um, reminded me, I wonder if you thought the same thing, so fucking much of Cy Abelman <laughs> from A Serious Man. <laughs> the uh, confidence, I, I just, I don't know if, I guess I love characters like this. I love him. I mean, Cy that, Abelman is literally my that, favorite movie character. Of, it's like Teddy KGB from Rounders and Cy Abelman are my two favorite characters ever. I think I have Cy Abelman over Michael Corleone. I'm just, yeah, just going to say that right just now. Just <laughs> the funniest fucking character of all time. I mean, he's so good. I guess it is kind of funny. Just this hyper-confident character that cuckolds you. And it's like, listen to me. Yeah. It's going to be okay. It's going to be. And it gives you hugs. And there's like a weird, yeah. like homo erotic thing happening too with this Heinrich character. I know. You know? It's like, what is this guy doing? Like get the, the, his behavior is so strange. It's very like metrosexual. And mm -hmm. like, you know, that is, you know, in every man's worst nightmare, that is the man that, your wife leaves you for who's like very right. like european yes. he wears his shirt half buttoned down and he's metrosexual and artistic and interesting it's the guy who's cuck holding you that's inviting that is the the worst thing ever that's right that's, that's exactly that's, right because it should not be that way you should be throwing fists but this guy's like no come here right no, it's, it's and like, then when he fights you he has like weird <laughs> kung fu moves he does like roundhouse like, kick he's chuck norris here. yeah right in another life we would have been friends too that's the aspect of it that's like yeah there he <laughs> right it's right. like i would have looked up to you and wanted to be your friend yeah if it wasn't for the fact that you're boning my wife on your last visit home were you content with your wife i mean sexually why because in that period, we reached a state of perfect harmony. Uh, my mother. She care all the time. Yes. Even when you're fucking Anna. Of course. So like, it was so Cy Abelman to me, just like all bluster and like weird affection. And he's in your personal space. And it's like, <laughs> who the fuck is this guy? And why is she attracted to him is the other exactly. thing too. So like, who is this woman that I married? <laughs> and he lives with his mom and he's a weirdo. It's yeah, it's an amazing character. I love it. I love, I love those guys. I guess that's kind of why I sort of like the therapist in Seinfeld who won't let Elaine go. Who's similarly, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Elaine, just, they, they go to France or yeah, yeah, yeah. Just sit down. Right. No, I, I don't. Just sit down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, you, you know what? That's a good point. Like it, it's the person that you listen to them, even though like it, annoys you yeah <laughs> you know like you just feel compelled to like obey the instructions of this person because of the confidence they exude even though you're like who the fuck is this jerk off and why am i following his instructions you know and i'm just thinking about larry still ends up with the jolly roger <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> we do think the jolly roger is the appropriate course of action, of action here <laughs> sam neil starts to learn more about this affair and this is when he goes on a pretty gnarly bender and ends up in a hotel room for three weeks, I think he says. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. Obviously, I heard some stories about what the director put 
Sam Neill and Isabella Arjani through. But like, I want to know how he got into that mode for that Bender scene because it is grueling to watch. I, I imagine Isabella was all in on the subway scene. Yeah, she looked like that was all her. That was all her. She had to, yeah, exactly, exactly. She had to have been really committed. She might have known, like, this is going to suck, but I want to do this. And I wonder if Sam Neill was in the same mindset for those Bender scenes. Yeah. I don't know. There are reports kind of unsubstantiated that Isabella Arjani tried killing herself after the making of this movie. And I don't know if that's just like urban legend or whatever, but yeah, Sam Neill describes this experience not too kindly, although no. like he's kind of proud of the movie and the you know final product, obviously. He was very critical of the methodology. I'm sure. That was used. And I just imagined that there was sleep deprivation and emotional trauma. It was like Nick Cage and leaving Las Vegas. Like it was like real severe alcoholism. Yeah. Just flop sweating and just ghostly his appearance in that scene. Like it's really gnarly. Note to people watching movies when it looks that convincing. Right. Chances are they probably put themselves through it. Right. <laughs> that's that's the right. That's the really disturbing thing about movies. It's like when you go like, you know, it's like that horrible thing where it's like if you're watching the news or something, it's like, did that guy die? Yeah, he probably died. Right. Yeah. So he goes on this bender, returns home, finds his son, Bob. Love that his name is Bob. Oh yeah. <laughs> Worst name for an eight-year-old. Bob. I love Bob. the way he said it. Bob. We, <laughs> we have to go get Bob. <laughs> I'm gonna kill you, Bob. <laughs> I'm gonna kill you, Bob. It's always gonna be the funniest name. I don't know if any name Bob. will ever top Bob in terms of just pure comedy. You can just insert it into any scenario and it's always funny. And it made me feel a little less bad for the kid, to be honest for you. If his name was like Calvin, maybe I would have felt worse. But no, his name is Bob. Oh, so Bob's the funniest, just casual like, name. Bob, dude. Yeah, like, fuck you can, just, Bob. you can hit Bob, Bob over the head with a falling piano. Like, it's just so classically comic. What's the most innocent name? Oh, this is fun. Yeah, what makes you feel the most bad for a young child? Yeah, yeah like Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. Is char- I-, I was going to say like Timmy, like little Timmy. tiny Tim. Okay, yeah, little there Tim. you go, there you go. Yeah. yeah, Charlie's pretty good. Yeah, although like Charlie can go either way because like if there's a 70-year-old named Charlie, you're like that dude is a chain smoker and is going to have three heart attacks in the next hour. <laughs> or if you live in Connecticut, I don't I don't know if this is exclusive to Connecticut, but 10% Charlie, you remember those fucking commercials? Uh at, at Bobarino Nissan, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. 10% Charlie. There and you don't go. Don't forget to ask for me, 10% Charlie. Yeah, I don't feel bad for 10% Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> I love you had to ask for him to get the discount. No one else is capable of giving you 10% off. Charlie's golfing today. <laughs> Full prices. Fine, I'll come back tomorrow. 10% Charlie's not here to slash them <laughs> with his giant scissors. Price tag is what you it got, is. You got me today. Full price Frank. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. It's me, Wholesale Herbert. <laughs> Oh my god. Um yeah, so he returns. Bob is sitting there with jelly on his face. He's like, "Yeah, mom hasn't been here for a while. I'm just taking care of myself." <laughs> and this is a thing that Andre Zhuwowski actually experienced when he was going through a divorce with his wife in the mid-70s. That is what this movie obviously is heavily based on. He says this is his only autobiographical film. 
but he was going through a divorce with his wife and a similar thing happened where he appeared at his wife's place. She was not there. Kid was sitting there with jelly on his face. Aww. And um, yeah, this is obviously, this is, he's speaking from experience here, the pain of a divorce. I want to see evidence of this squid monster. Andre, show <laughs> me the squid monster, please. <laughs> Squid monster or it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's all bullshit. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, immediately we're in this position where we're not sympathizing. Well, really not sympathizing with either of these people because they're insane. They're I mean, terrible. They're crazy. The, the worst fucking people. That's the thing. It's like, it's like, I, I think it helps. Like you wonder like what the hell happened to these people? Cause it coun't have been this bad from the start, but dropping, like you said, in media res just makes the whole thing all the more like, traumatizing in a way like to see human beings suffering in this way but also like getting more monstrous as they go <laughs> so really yeah jarring too throughout the film is how much kind of back and forth he's like i don't want anything to do with bobby i don't want to see him again and then she's not there then he's like i'm staying with bobby you're out of the picture mm-hmm. and then she shows up and then she disappears and goes missing and then heinrich's there and then she's not there and then heinrich's at the apartment asking where she is and she's not there it's like there's so much fucking moving around of like who's in charge here. There's that incredible shot of him on the rocking chair mm. where he's going back and forth. And that's when he makes the decision that he's going to be involved in Bob's life again. Yep. Yeah. And it's this you know very on the nose like visual device of like the guy straddling between two worlds or whatever and like literally going back and forth in his mind and his decision making. But he's motivated as you come to find out entirely by ego his answer to everything is always like why don't you love me more Mm. right like every time he has a conversation with his wife and she is clearly not well (laughs) let's put it mildly is not well and it always comes back to you have me you have your son and like this is a common theme in divorce movies too particularly like male-centric divorce movies your problem is that you're not loving hard enough your problem is that you're not being good enough wife to me You know, the problem is that you're not being a good mother. You're not helping me in my parenting duties, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, that's the thing about Sam Neill and why he's on a pendulum all the time is because it's all in pursuit of ego. It's not in pursuit of, like, good or in, like, a cosmic sense, a cosmic good, right? Mm -hmm. All the while, um, he's partially to blame for all this, but she's a serial killer. Yeah, so is that literal, by the way? Yeah. Is that, I mean, at what point does the movie stop being literal and start being absolutely bonkers, like, made up? See, my reading on this is always, like, the case of Lynch movies. Whatever's happening is happening. Yeah, I know, I know. It's usually you know? A, a metaphor for... That's the easiest way to watch any movie. I, yeah, I think it kind of is the truest way to watch it. Like, Sure. Normally, it when is, you yeah. hear directors talk about, the, and there's all these theories of, like, actually, it was the last 20 minutes of Dream, you know, after this happened. This was the turning point. And, like, those theories can be fun or whatever. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I do view it in a similar way. It's like, in the context of the movie, the squid is probably actually there, but it's it's a very clearly a, a metaphor for for something else sure uh, so in that sense it's not real but yes in the in the context of what's happening to the characters there's an element of realism to it kind of like titan when we were talking about that i'm like yes there's a thousand different things that this movie is is saying but she actually is fucking the car and she actually sure. is giving birth to this weird metal baby thing right. so. i mean that's anything it's <laughs> yeah. like you know luke skywalker is a messianic figure yeah. i mean he's yeah. standing in for something but that doesn't mean that like star wars isn't happening in the world of star wars you know or maybe it is not all happening, or that there, there, you can read it both ways too. Yeah, know? I just think from like but, the filmmaker's point of view, though, yeah. it doesn't really behoove him to think about these stories in a yeah. 
a theoretical way. Yeah, to your point, Nick, I think you could make the argument there. There is a point where like a lot of this stuff is more like psychological manifestation. I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I mean, I don't know if he's a spy and she's a serial killer. It sounds like the whole movie is pretty just absurd from the start. So <laughs> yeah, it's real in the sense that absurdism is real. Yeah, I read, and this, yeah, the world itself is absurd. Yes, right. There you go. Yeah, the universe that it exists in has different rules, mm-hmm. and so all all this is happening, this domestic kind of drama, with this like whirling dervish uh, cinematography. Yeah, right. Where like the camera does not fucking sit still. Mm-hmm. It's just like whizzing by every <laughs> character. And so, like, immediately, like, you feel like you're a ghost, right? Or you feel like there is a ghost in the room. Like, that is the way that, like, you indicate that there is an evil force lurking, right? Well, it's the, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, for a story like this, it's about characters that are constantly on edge and anxious and exhausted more than anything. So it kind of makes sense that the camera also puts the audience in a similar state of mind. I mean, it's not what Irreversible is doing for making you feel nauseous, but in terms of like the anxiety and, and the exhaustion that one has just while sitting with the movie, it does give a similar sort of Im- impression, I would say. Right. And it's also like calibrating itself to the performances too, mm-hmm. which are similarly physical mm-hmm. and erratic. There's a goofiness sometimes. Particularly with Heinrich. He's easily the, the goofiest of, of the bunch for me. I but, was But seeing those characters shot in that way, there's a dissonance where it's like you know, it makes their movements like the subway scene, for example, watching the camera pan around her as she's doing like this very like expressionistic acting style. Mm-hmm. There is like a weird comedy to it. That's an example of like it's funny until it's very much not funny. Though. Yes. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, yeah. right, 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 right. Yeah. Which it would be, though. I mean, I could imagine coming across like, say, someone like having any sort of mental breakdown for whatever reason in a subway. You might laugh at it. You might. You'd be like, what the hell is that guy doing over there? And then, But if you stared at it for long enough, which this movie forces you to do. Uh, I love that Adam goes to subways and just, just like watch laughs people at people having breakdowns. That's good. I know. It's not I so much gonna... that. It's it's like the idea like in passing, like because you see weird, like in New York, you'll see weirdos on the subway all the time and they're doing sure. a lot of strange stuff and you'll be like, what the fuck was, and you, you go on your way. Right. Or they might yell out something really crazy and you might laugh. But if you stop to look at it, it would probably disturb you a lot. I kept thinking what I would do if I... I came across this person. If I was walking down that hallway and I was like, <laughs> I saw this, I, I would cancel my plans for the day. I would just turn around. Yeah, turn around. Yeah, or that. <laughs> I'm not. And that's before the pus, dude. That's just that's just the movements alone. What kind of fucking Yoko Ono performance art is this? This is so weird. <laughs> <laughs> this is weird. This Poor is Yoko. A, what does this have to do with Tibet? <laughs> <laughs> the scene prior where she's sitting with Sab Neil and just trying to make sense of their situation and failing miserably and it just, she's just breaking down more and more and more like it already puts you in this heightened state of erraticism and just it, it's just it's, it's insane it's just insane she has this rambling monologue exactly that yeah is shot kind of out of focus mm-hmm. which I found interesting but also really close which it's, <laughs> it's really close and but the depth of field is so short so like you know and so you know, she's talking about these two daughters. There are these two sisters that exist within her. Yes, I'm thinking about him. But I recognize the self who has just done something horrible, like a sister I've casually made in the street. Hello, sister. It's like those two sisters have faith and chance. It's like those, t- it's like those two sisters have faith and chance. Well, faith 
But faith can't exclude chance, but chance... Oh, shh. Well, it's, it's like the two sisters of faith and chance. My faith can't exclude chance, but my chance can, can, can explain faith. My faith didn't allow me to wait for chance, and chance didn't give me enough faith. Well, and then I read that private life is a stage only I play in many parts that are smaller than me, and yet I still play them. I suffer, I believe, I am. But at the same time, I know there's the third possibility, you know, like cancer or madness. But cancer or madness contort reality. The possibility I'm talking about pierces reality. It's faith and chance. And most of this monologue doesn't make much fucking sense. But the simplest way of explaining it is like faith stands in for good. It stands for order and justice in the world. And chance stands in for evil. It's heaven and hell. It's chaos and order, whatever. She looks like she's bubbling. Yes. The entire time. (laughs) And she is sort of explaining in so many words that both of these things exist within her. But it feels like chance is sort of overtaking faith. Right, and it's, I think the word she uses is piercing through reality or something. Yeah, there's an element of her that's being ripped apart, it feels like. Yes. But when you start that, and you're in that headspace, and then you jump to the scene with her just looking at uh, Jesus on the cross, right? and the uh, shot reverse shot, like that alone was freaking me out. Like I was already watching that. I'm like, I am horrified just by this, Yeah. let alone what's going to happen. <laughs> and it is one of the... the uh, I don't even know where to begin with this scene, to be honest with you. <laughs> I had seen this scene, by the way. Okay, I had not seen it. On its it. own, before watching the movie, and was disturbed by it then, but even more disturbed by it in the context of I the was, movie. I was going to say, because you, yeah. you saw it out of context then, so. Sure. Yeah. And I, like, you know, you come across it on Twitter, and it's like, this, you, you can't do it justice. Like, it, it just looks like weird, artsy-fartsy bullshit. Until you get to the ending, obviously, and, you know, sometimes, like, you just got to add an extra squib. You know, sometimes you just have to add the extra sack of fluid, you know, coming out of the wrong place and it can turn like a somewhat scary B movie into The Exorcist. Yeah. And that's what this it's just like the extra pus coming out of her shoulders or neck or whatever. The, the fact that it's not the, just her, her mouth. We, oh, her, sure. Yeah. Her, yeah. There's nothing normal about that. Usually it's like, oh, blood from the nose. I've seen it before. Blood from the mouth. I've seen that before. It almost looks like it's coming from the back of her head yeah. down her chest, everything. And then eventually just pooling around her crotch. I'm just like, dude, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> I was not entirely unconvinced that there wasn't something coming out from her crotch region as well. Oh, I, I, mean, I think, yeah, there was. It, there is an implication that there is. Yeah. Yeah, wasn't it essentially a miscarriage is kind of how that scene was described, right? Well, it's it's a mental breakdown that causes a miscarriage. That's what happened. But the creature that comes out is the is the creature in the apartment. I watched an interview with the director who clarified this. He said, one of my regrets about the movie is that I, I didn't articulate this clearly. That was the birth of the creature. That okay. scene happened okay. while he's away in Germany. Oh, it's a flashback? Yes, that's a flashback. See, that's super unclear. Yes. My impression, because she was just talking about faith and chance, was I kind of thought there were like two babies and one miscarried and the other was born. Th- yes, th- yes, 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 yeah. yes, yes. Right. I think that is what it, I, I don't know that for a fact, but I suspect that's what it was, yeah. Because there's a line that Sam Neill's like, oh, you have to take care of chance or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right? Like you feel an obligation to nurture this thing and that's when he kind of becomes possessed in his own way. You're right that I can't even begin to describe 
describe it. It's just like you just have to tell people to watch the movie. And we could tell you, yeah, it's it's brutal and physical and it's the most violent, nonviolent scene I've ever seen, period. It's not you think about it, it's like not really like that violent per se. Well, I mean, there's this thing from inside that's destroying her, but yeah. I'm just talking about like one's like physical like behavior and movements in the moment. Like it's really more or less like just her flailing about and screaming like a witch. And, you know, not something I haven't seen before, but here it's just brutal. It is exhausting. It is, like, really horribly violent to watch her just go through this strange expressionistic thing that she's doing. Andrzej Zhuofsky told her to, quote, fuck the air. That was his instruction to her. Mm. Fuck the air. And she did it. She did indeed. And she won Best Actress at Can for it. So well, there you go. There's something. Uh, just to be clear, like there are three colors of fluids that come out. There is obviously <laughs> red blood. There is a yellowy, milky white fluid, and then there is a green fluid. <laughs> at one point, Sam Neill sends a private investigator after his wife. They find this apartment that's like completely torn to shreds there there's garbage all over the floor sam neil thinks that she's with heinrich heinrich thinks that uh she's with sam neil when right. they're not together sure mm-hmm. they end up meeting each other and both realizing she's not there so now he knows okay she's not with him she's not with her friends she's not so there's this moment of what is she really doing like if the, the fact that she's using an affair to cover up something else yeah. <laughs> right? Like right. She's Can, using yeah. her affair with Heinrich as the lie yeah. to cover up what she's really doing. So it's like something really bad is happening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you never come home. Oh, where have you been, honey? I've just been, you know, fucking the secretary. Fucking another guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. That's right. hilarious. <laughs> right, yeah. It's got to be really bad, whatever you're doing. So the first investigator goes in and he uh, says, oh, I need to inspect your windows, ma'am. Oh, yeah, the worst private eye in the world. What does that mean, inspect your windows? I, I've i seen this cliche before in movies. Why do people, why is it a thing? <laughs> I've never inspected my own windows. Like, I have no idea. It's a good excuse to get into every room in their house. I guess so. <laughs> I need to inspect your windows. And you also got to remember, modern windows are like... Not the same as old windows used to be. This guy is the worst private eye ever. <laughs> They're just empty streets in West Berlin. You know, she's just like power walking to her apartment and he's running after her. Just in the least subtle way. It's like there's two people on this road. You've been following her, you know, since the subway or whatever. Like she knows that you're following her and then you try to sneak your way into the apartment. This guy is horrible at his job. But again, take that from an emotional standpoint. That's probably how she feels about the whole thing. I'm not I'm not just being like stalked. I'm being pursued by this guy. I know he's there. Why get the fuck out of here? Right. Even though from his perspective it's probably a totally different story. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably a little more subjective. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he he goes uh, and he says, oh, I need to go into the bathroom to inspect. And he sees this creature there in the bathroom. And she comes up behind him and stabs him in the throat with a broken bottle. Yep. Prompting uh, shortly thereafter another detective to follow up onto why his partner, both literal and uh, figurative, went missing. Uh, and she kills him, too, with his gun. Doesn't really put up much of a fight. No. no. But at this point, Sam Neill uh, knows something sketchy's going on and knows that he can hurt Heinrich by revealing whatever she's really doing. He doesn't know what she's really doing, but he suspects there's a third guy. Mm-hmm. 
So he gives Heinrich the address and he's like, here it is. That's where she is. And Heinrich finds the body parts in the fridge. (laughs) (laughs) Once again, though, that's a great point. It's like he's now using this knowledge that he acquired for pure exertion of power. Yes. Right. Yeah. That's the only thing he's interested in is this selfish gain of how can I take my pain and inflict it on another person? Mm-hmm. It's like, finally, I have the upper hand here because I know something he doesn't know. At any point in this movie, Samuel could have just been like, this woman is fucking possessed. You know, like even if you don't believe in possession, you know, this woman is possessed. There's never been a more obviously possessed woman than this woman. <laughs> like, even if you're a complete atheist, you buy that something supernatural is happening here. And yeah, he's never interested in that. He's interested in rectifying. He's interested in, in making her subservient. He's interested in like fulfilling his fantasy of the perfect woman. Right. And so all of her pain and trauma is, is just an obstacle to that ideal. Right. Sure. And it's just it's full steam ahead. Um, and it's the same thing with Heinrich. It's like, how do I just get pure revenge on this guy? I see. Yeah. You know, even if it's at the expense of my humanity, yeah. which is what happens when he eventually spoiler kills Heinrich <laughs> in the bathroom stall of the bar after Heinrich comes to him being like, hey, uh, there's a squid monster in there. Yeah. And your wife's a serial killer and there's a squid monster. Right. Yeah. She's probably fucking it. Yeah, she's probably. <laughs> no, she is fucking it. <laughs> yeah, there. I mean, yeah, there's a weird like sadism and uh, yeah, yeah. It's every scene, every like relationship is underlined by this like fine line between violence and sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even between those two, there's a really weird thing going on. But Heinrich is, yeah, he's a paper tiger. He's not really a tough guy, even though he does some kung fu moves. I'd say he's a tough guy. I mean, I don't care how tough you are. <laughs> When you get hit in the head with the top of a toilet <laughs> in a sneak attack, you're fucking dead, yeah. dude. Like, well, yeah, that's not really what I mean. But yeah, he's, uh, you know, he's just a scared guy. And uh, Sam Neill murders him in the bathroom stall, I guess, to cover up for his wife or, or I guess he just always wanted to do it. Right. Yeah. I think part of it is that he also remember he takes his wallet and he throws it in the apartment and then he proceeds to blow up his wife's apartment. I thought, you know, for like a think fast murder, like pretty, pretty quick on the draw there, Sam. Like he came up with that plan really quickly. All you need is a shoe. I mean, it was pretty good, like MacGyvering there. You know, I don't know if I could stage a murder that successfully that shortly. This was the only scene where I believed he was a spy. It's like he's done this before. Uh, right, right, it right. felt like he was trained for this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He like clogs the toilet with a shoe and then hits Heinrich over the head with the top of the toilet seat, puts him face down in the overflowing toilet, sprinkles drugs all over him, locks the bathroom stall and then climbs over the top of it. It's pretty sick. <laughs> Not bad. <Yeah. laughs> pretty fu- How to get away with murder. There you go. Sort of the funniest scene in the movie for me, though. Very funny. It is very funny. <laughs> Very funny. So at this point, are you guys under the impression that Sam Neill has now become possessed by whatever this creature is? Well, here's my question to you. Yeah. Do you think possession refers to like, like, cause I never read it as demonic possession. Okay. I mean, you can maybe argue it's more of like a, like a psychological, like some idea or whatever, a feeling gets a hold of you and it causes, especially in a state of uh, like, like high emotion forces you to do crazy things. That's one way of reading it. Or does possession have to do with like one human beings possession of another human being yeah i think it's that because that was always my take on it 
more of like exploring that right. train. Yeah, that I didn't even consider that. That's interesting. Remember what Heinrich says to her in her apartment. He says, I'm the only one who hasn't made claim on you, which is why you're mine. <laughs> Jesus. That's <Yes>. right. <laughs> it's a thing that a lot of especially young men do. They're like, since I was always so nice to you, I deserve you. And then they get mad when they get rejected. Oh, the uh, yeah. I, I don't know anybody like that. <laughs> you know, never. You don't need to. It's fair. Never met anybody like that before. <laughs> I think every single guy can relate to that at some point. I don't don't relate. Can't relate. Don't no. Don't relate at all. <laughs> I'm sure I've been that person, Adam. I'm sure you've been that. I've person. never. I've never been that person. Never. No. Well, never. I'm proud of you. That's great. I don't want any woman to ever desire me. I mean, that's my <laughs> thing. I'm totally cool with it. That's a healthy approach. That's yeah. Not bad, actually. Yeah. Like whoever you want. You know. You know? Um, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no. Yeah, I guess that is a that is a way of putting it. I mean, I just take it as it's a horror movie about like this weird demon monster. So I imagine that there is a yeah. spiritual supernatural thing. And just stylistically, too. The title kind of implies that it's a, a supernatural possession, but I, I don't think it is. But you're right. No, it might be a literal like you can be possessed by rage. You can be possessed yeah. by lust, like all of yeah. these actual demons. Mm-hmm. These spirits that possess you in your life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe that is what he's possessed by at the end. But I, I do feel like there is a clear shift after he enters the apartment. Maybe. You know, when he actually goes in there and the, the camera at this point, by the way, is doing a lot of the work. Mm-hmm. You feel especially unsettled in that particular scene. But yeah, I, I do feel like there is a switch where it's like he kind of gets what his wife's mission in life is you know we totally forgot to mention that like in essence the wife has sort of become a different person in the well, helen character yes well the, yes and, exactly right and, and now we're getting into this territory of like now in order for them to come back together they are literally starting to become different people right well yeah i think at that point he reaches some sort of inner peace about letting his wife's desires be her own desires yep. because he has the platonic ideal back at home yep in the form of his son's school teacher, mm-hmm. who is played by Isabel Arjani as well in a dual performance. Yep. And Sam Neill at one point is like, is this a practical joke? Are you actually my wife in a wig or whatever? <laughs> like, that's how similar they're meant to look in the movie, too. But she begins caring for Bob and she becomes the the housewife, even though they're not officially married or whatever. Yep. She becomes the perfect housewife that is completely sympathetic to him at all times and is nurturing and perfect and doesn't leave the house. There are two doppelgangers in this movie, maybe both of them from the same source. We don't know. Yeah, we don't, That's exactly. one of the mysteries at the end. We don't know. But even if she is just his son's school teacher, it, it's meant to be the, the platonic ideal, the yes. perfect ideal housewife that I can control. Yes, and it's entirely poetic as to, you know, to, to leading into that, having the two, the originals, I guess is what we'll call them, the originals literally kill each other. Yes. <laughs> Essentially. I mean, you got to remember, this is both her lover and her child. His motivation has always been, we're a family, and I feel like he's like, ah, there's a new child that she's trying to take care of, and uh, I can be the father figure again. Ah, interesting, yeah. Even though she's also her lover <laughs> and he sees this he witnesses it yeah right the squid monster is kind of a mixed metaphor there but it is yeah that's a good point it felt weird how he just kind of like flipped the switch though and suddenly it seemed like he was like working with her towards a inevitable pointless end i guess i don't really well i think that that maybe that is a big part of it it's like if you're in this type of relationship it is kind of 
pointless. You could read this as a transformation of like when you have a child, both of you, like you may not satisfy each other anymore. Uh, but both of you have to become different people for the sake of this new creature. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah and sure. you have to kill the old version of yourself. Yep. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But that's a more optimistic reading, I think, than the divorce angle. I, I do think that is interesting too, like this this empty pursuit of like marriage for marriage's sake. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's like they're not really concerned about Bob, these people. <laughs> In fact, the people that are concerned about Bob meet a pretty untimely fate. Yep. Including the friend, Margie, who's very annoying, but she just like gets her throat slit. For no reason. Yeah, for no, no real reason. We don't even yeah. see it. It's off screen. Yeah, he just discovers her. <laughs> you know, he, she's always offering to take care of Bob. And, you know, she's a bit annoying in the way that a lot of like best friends can be. But don't we meet her? Actually, she's on the phone the whole time. Don't we actually meet her for the first time? And then the next time we see her, she's dead. I think we get, I think we get one scene. I think we get one yeah. scene where she shows up. I think actually, no, him and uh, Sam Neill and her have sex. At I one believe point. so. Yeah. yeah. Or at least they like cuddle or something. But yeah, she is mostly relegated to phone calls. Yeah. Poor Margie. Poor Margie. 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 Poor Margie. So this is when the movie really. It goes all out. It just decides we're going to go into full absurdism here. Mm-hmm. And again, it's like I, I almost I wish I realized the movie that I was watching. Maybe it would actually stand up well on on rewatch. I think it would. Yeah, because tonally, like the last 20 minutes is such an explosion. Yeah. But Heinrich's mother calls Sam Neill and she's like, my son hasn't come home. Right. And again, there's this there's this weird kind of like attachment. There's this mommy issues going on with Heinrich. So. Heinrich's not a young man either. I always found that very funny. Like the mom has got to be pretty friggin old because Heinrich is pretty old himself. <laughs> yeah. So he gets a phone call. And th- th- this is, again, when the conversations start to become otherworldly. Mm-hmm. The mother is like, you know, Heinrich, they, they found his body, but his spirit was not in it. It's all like, you know, very sort of um, you know, spooky dialogue here. And for a second, I'm like, is the mother, because I'm trying to piece it together like a whodunit almost. I, I'm approaching the movie as though it can be solved. So I'm thinking like, did the mother impregnate the woman? Is there like a weird Jalo ending happening here? <laughs> you know, because there's also the scene where Sam Neill's talking to her on the phone and he's flickering the light. Yeah. Do you remember that where like he's in the kitchen and the lights flickering on and off? I was expecting something to appear in the background at one of those moments and it just never happens. I nearly had a fucking heart attack. Like it's like really unsettling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all this shit is happening. I'm like, all right, what am I? What's what's happening here? You know, like <laughs> what is this building towards? And he goes to the mother and the mother overdoses on pills. And he's like, yeah, she's like, I think I'm done here. You know, my son's gone. I, I have nothing more to live for. And um, that's when an investigation starts happening where Margie her apartment is surrounded by police and Sam Neill stumbles upon this apartment after covering up Margie's death and being complicit essentially in Isabella Arjani's crimes yeah and also witnessing her having sex with the the squid squid monster monster. yes and just being cool with it just getting (laughs) cucked by a squid happens happens to the best of us (laughs) um and this is when like he rams into a cop car and gets shot and then hops on a motorcycle <laughs> and there's like a weird motorcycle stunt. It's insane. It's insane. It's insane. <laughs> the cop car is just, and all the cars next to it just begin blowing up. They just begin exploding. Yes. I, I couldn't explain to you how or why. 
but they just begin uh, blowing up one by one. This ending is such a fever dream that it's just, oh God. He begins heading up a building to, I was assuming he was trying to reach his wife. Yes. But she wasn't actually in the building. So I don't know where he was going. And that's very unclear to me. But he's bleeding out and walking up these stairs and it's a spiral staircase. And the camera work here is amazing. It's is it a church? Is it like a steeple or something? I feel like there's like a church bell. Uh, yeah. or it, It's almost like a Guggenheim spiral staircase design totally unclear why it's there where they're going and he uh slowly just is bleeding out and gets slower and slower and eventually he's crawling and eventually he falls over and can't move which is when uh his wife arrives police in tow well actually one guy by her side right (laughs) oh true 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 this guy looks awfully a lot like sam neil Oh, you don't say. And she says, hey, look, it's finished. (laughs) I love it. Hey, here it is. (laughs) So all this fucking and murdering was in service of creating Sam Neill's doppelganger, who has green eyes and looks a lot like Sam Neill, although he's like cleanly shaven and, um, you know, he just looks odd. Something's not right. I felt like the voice of the person when they were talking Sounded like Heinrich, and the sort of attitude was a little bit more like confident, flamboyant. Mm. I got the impression that all of the men she was fucking and killing <laughs> were a service of creating her perfect ideal, sure, which was yeah, Heinrich's maybe. spirit, mm-hmm. her husband's, you know, face or whatever. And yeah, there is a swagger and confidence about him. You are right. Yeah, about yeah that. for yeah. sure, for sure. I agree with that. Yeah. I I read Heinrich there, but I don't think it was ever clarified. Well, I'll tell you what, it's not Sam Neil. No, you know, like no. that is not Sam Neill's no. character. No. Who, no. You know. And by the way, Sam Neill in this scene is fucking incredible. Yep. I, I mean, give him an Oscar for this scene alone. Like it's amazing. Acting. Could you imagine this movie getting any Oscar? <laughs> Holy no, it can't. fuck. It can't. <laughs> we should mention, by the way, this did get a U.S. release and it bombed mm-hmm. because 40 minutes were taken out. Yeah, 45 minutes were stripped from the film. Which is crazy. It's a two-hour movie that was released in an 81-minute form. Yeah. And the critical reviews were terrible. Like, a lot of people compared it to, like, Basket Case, which I think is kind of funny. There are some comparisons there. But, like, sleazy and kind of like a B-movie. And, like, obviously, if 40 minutes of this thing were removed, you would think that. I can't imagine what that movie looks like. It's got to be a nightmare. Like I don't know what you cut. No, just impossible to follow. Impossible to follow, too, yeah. He sees the doppelganger and tries shooting him. And instead, bullets start flying from below because the police have arrived. Mm-hmm. And both of them, husband and wife, get hit. The doppelganger makes it out all right. He's able to make a clean break. I'm glad. So, yeah, this is one of those moments where, because I had also read briefly about how some people believe that this creature doesn't actually exist literally in the story of the film. Yeah. This is probably one of the only pieces of defense I have for that, which is... All of these bullets fly through and he's unharmed, mm. right. almost as if he wasn't actually there to begin with. He's also a, a squid creature. Yeah, he's a, he he's can, a demonic squid creature. He can do so, whatever you know, I don't know if bullets are really effective against them. Right. They I didn't, mean, you know, they didn't put holy water on those bullets. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe if they. That's the problem. I always soak my magazine cartridges in holy water before. <laughs> just in case the vampire. <laughs> you never know. Up. Just in case. <laughs> Could you imagine the exorcist? They just start shooting Reagan. <laughs> Isn't that what the Pope's exorcist is? I have no idea. I had to see oh that movie, God. but I, that was the sense I got. It's like they Russell Crowe sh- just shooting demons. <laughs> they just start shooting. You, you get some holy water, you soak it in garlic, and you leave it out in a full moon overnight, and you're good to go. You're I good. Mean it. Th- that's what demonic is about, the Neil Blomkamp masterpiece oh, demonic. Oh, yeah, sure, the black ops priest. That's right. That was sick. Don't forget. 
I mean, I wish it was sick. <laughs> yeah, I'm watching a movie about Black Ops Priest. It's like, this thing better fucking rip. And it just didn't rip. Yeah, it just kind of sucks. How dare you make a movie about Black Ops Priest boring? I know. You know, the nerve, the gall. It's a great genre, Black Ops Priest. It's, all, it's always a winner, but here it just, no. It just didn't stick the landing. It didn't work at all. Um, so he makes it out. The two of them die in a firestorm there. And I think Isabel Arjani eventually shoots a bullet through both of them. Yes. And that was the final blow. And they die in a kind of loving embrace in a very perverse way. But doesn't Sam Neill jump from the the top? Yes. He falls he all the does. way down, which is fucking nuts. He does. <laughs> that cut is interesting, too, because we go from, I guess, his perspective climbing over, and then suddenly we cut, and he's just like a dead blob on the floor. It, there wasn't like, I feel like a lot of times when a character is falling to their death, the movie will dwell on the falling. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, slow motion. This doesn't add all. It's Cold no play falling. plays yeah. underneath. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, but, like, not only do they not dwell on the falling, they actually take time out in between the events. Yeah, yeah. Like, he falls too quickly. It's very he's dismissive. Like, one second, yeah. he's at the top, and the next, dead. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. It's really diabolical because the music also begins to swell, and it's very orchestral, and then you get a smash cut. The music cuts immediately, and we're at the breakfast table with the sun. Mm-hmm. And then you get an ending that's a little hard to read. I think you can read it in an optimistic sense if you want to. I don't, but I guess you can. I do not read no, it I don't in any it. optimistic. No, no, absolutely not. I could see some people coming out of it and saying, like, now the two ideal versions of themselves are technically together. And raising Bob. And right? raising Bob. Yeah. <laughs> or, or you read it as uh, a reset of everything that just happened. <laughs> Bob is at the table. There's a doorbell or a knock at the door. You have to remember, it's a monster that's ringing the doorbell. Monster's ringing the doorbell. Bob is like, don't answer it. Yes. Don't let him in. Don't let him in. Don't let him in. teacher who is caring for bob at this moment is like ah relax or whatever and he runs up to the bathtub which is full of water he dunks himself i don't know if he's drowning himself or it's just like yeah. i don't know what he's doing yeah he's he's but i guess some people was like oh it's the new man you know it's the dad that you know yeah maybe it's a rebirth it's kind of yeah, like yeah. a baptism exactly. the new father right passing yourself up yep. to, yeah um, she doesn't answer the door, or at least we don't see it on well, screen. She might answer the door, but it, yeah. it it cuts to black before she does answer the door. But in the meanwhile, you have the sound of bombs going off and sirens, mm -hmm. as though you know there is conflict building. Yep, Cold War, obviously, we know what's going on in Berlin, and evil's here, right? Evil's at yep. your doorstep. Yeah, yeah, it, it, so. it, it's finally here. It was lurking there. It was waiting for its moment to strike, mm -hmm. and now it's here. And you get this shot of Sam Neil in silhouette behind this smoky glass door and he's just sort of rubbing on the door of like let me in yeah in this very it's, like it's alien like night way. of the living dead or something yeah <laughs> but it's like this dracula thing of like i can't enter you have to invite yeah, me let in. me in yeah, yeah right you have to invite me in exactly and 
It's really unsettling. Mm -hmm. And as the bombs go off and the sirens get louder, you see a shot of the teacher directly into the camera looking right into us. And she gives us like a smirk Mm. of like, she's probably going to let this guy in. And maybe she's a doppelganger born of the same methodology. Probably. Yeah. It's just this birth of evil. Yeah. (laughs) On both sides, probably. Right. Um, and that's the movie. <laughs> so, so what do you get from a relationship like this? Well, you just spawn evil. Yes. <laughs> you, and you nurture it. Literally, that's what happened. They're nurturing evil. <laughs> I found this ending to be like profoundly disturbing yeah. and it has not left my mm-hmm. brain and it is up there with the best things that like Louis Bunuel or David Lynch has ever done. Like it is like, truly expressionistic and unsettling, but also with really interesting ideas mm-hmm. or you can just like vibe with it. And it's like this. Yeah. It's like the Laura Palmer scream, as I said. Like, yes. Yeah. Don't examine it. You can, you, I mean, you, you can examine the implications of like, you know, the evil lurking in a domestic environment and you know, the we're powerless to stop it, especially yeah. in, in, in twin peaks. That's like, we're power. We can't do anything about it. Yeah. Which is a great ending. But similarly here, yeah, one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah. It's a movie that needs to stick this landing to make all that wacky shit not feel like bullshit. And it just does. It, ugh, this thing hits harder than anything. Yeah. I think it's a masterpiece that I will never watch again. Told you. Uh, <laughs> I told you. <laughs> you know, it's, it. yeah, just put it squarely in that category of like, I admire the hell out of it, but. I do not want to live in this movie. I mean, just the acting style, just like the way that they argue with each other. Mm-hmm. It's like there's, they're constantly they're screaming at each other <laughs> and it's so violent. And also the apartment is so claustrophobic. Like it's this tiny ass apartment. If you were scouting locations, they picked the perfect one, but you would never choose it. Like if you sent a crew out there to be like, find an apartment I can shoot a horror movie in, you would not pick that. It's like, how are we going to set up the angles here? Like, it's it's so wrong. It's so not cinematic, and that's what makes it so cinematic. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's actually, like, fascinating to behold. But here's here's the thing, Nico. We, we, we just got out of doing Jala July. You want to know one of the more interesting things about this movie to contrast that season? Hmm. No color yes, at all. It's so flushed out. That's, like, obviously a Cold War thing, right? <laughs> it's the Cold War. It's the mood. It's what the themes are telling the filmmaker to do. It's just the story to me. I think it's a great decision. Yeah. But I think it's gorgeous looking. It definitely, is. But you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Just the camera work is so interesting. But to a lot of people who are like, why does this look like a bowl of oatmeal? It's like, well, you know. Sure. Maybe it needs to look like a bowl of Life oatmeal. Life be like that sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially in West Berlin. Sure. So. Um, yeah. It's really a tough watch. And I wouldn't recommend it to everyone. And I would not recommend it for date night. Nico had a date, watched it with a with a girl, and then she's not talking to him ever again. Can you imagine? <laughs> we want to watch a ghost movie. A, it's called Possession. A Netflix and chill. <laughs> want a Shutter and chill. Yeah, yeah Shutter. <laughs> the, the right girl might be into the weird, slimy kinks of this movie. Yeah, no, I mean it's tough because it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't. Right, double edged sword. If she's not into it, well then. Like, you're never going to see me again because you'd, you'd be freaked out that I'd show it to you on a first date. But if you are into it, I'm questioning my decisions of, like, 
Well, why into it? <laughs> that, that makes me think of a anecdote that uh, David Fincher was, he was talking to his daughter, Felix, and she was like, yeah, I'm seeing this guy and uh, his favorite movie is Fight Club. And David Fincher was like, yeah, never speak to him ever right, again. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> Fincher's like, stay the fuck out of that guy's dorm room. All right. That's great. Jesus. Shutter and Schnuggle. That's right. Mm. Ah, I'm trying to. I'm trying to. That's what I've been working on this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> we are recording another podcast right now that will be coming next week. The movie is called The Hamiltons. It's going to be a much different conversation, I'm sure. Certainly, yes. the third movie in our spectacular. It's short, hour twenty minutes, and it's an indie from 2006. So, if you want to catch up before next week's episode, go ahead and do that. We love you. See you next week. Bye bye.